Pro Video Coalition podcast. This is uh, one where we're going to be talking about audio, all things audio post, a little bit on audio recording, and just uh, in general audio because sound and audio is one of the most important parts of the whole film and video process. So I've got with me today Woody Woodhall, who is uh, Mr. Local to PVC. He's been one of our writers for a number of years. Woody, how's it going? Doing well, thank you, Lauren. Uh <laughs> Well, wait a minute. So that brings us up our, our other uh, our, our other participant, which is Lawrence Everson, who is also in Los Angeles. Correct? Is that correct, Lawrence? Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah, I'm also here. Downtown LA is where my studio is, and it's an absolute pleasure to be chatting with you both here. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. And I asked you guys on because I wanted to get uh, a little perspective from those people who work in audio post production as their full time discipline, and talk a little bit about best practices for thinking about audio when you're recording and when you're coming into into the 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 post process um is it fair to say that people have often heard that audio the sound is often more important than the video and if so explain to the listeners it was when when i say that sometimes like during a student class or something they're often don't understand like, Hey, I'm a filmmaker. I'm, I'm shooting video. What do you mean? Audio is more important, but one of you two gentlemen explain to us what that means when people say that audio is often more important than the video. You want to take that one? Yeah. Yeah. I know for me, uh, the way I tend to, to phrase it is slightly different. I wouldn't say it's necessarily more important because, um, you know, video and audio film is, is a, a marriage between the two and they have to kind of work together. I do think by nature, humans are, we're a very visual first sort of species. So I think we kind of think about and we understand the visuals a little more na- like naturally than, than the audio. The audio tends to have to be something that's, you have to kind of practice listening in order to get good at it. Um, but what I like to kind of say is my own viewpoint, and maybe some cinematographers out there might disagree with it, but I've always kind of looked at it where the images convey the information in film and the sound conveys the emotion of film. And I think that the emotional connection audiences have with the film projects is really, really largely driven by the soundtrack. It's driven by music, it's driven by dialogue, it's driven by the sound design and things like that. And I think if you have poor sound on a project, if it's poorly recorded or if it's poorly mixed, um, then you really kind of lose that emotional connection and that emotional bridge. And so that's what I always like to try and uh, uh, convey to people about the importance of of sound. It's not necessarily that it's more important than the visuals, but um, there's a different kind of emotional. It's it's extremely important for the emotional connection. And and that's something I do think that is very often overlooked, especially by uh, younger first time filmmakers. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I, I think the, the way I always phrase it to filmmakers is I always say, it's not about the shot. Don't always think I got to get the shot. It's, uh, it's not just, uh, don't just get the shot, essentially, is what I'm trying to spit out here. I guess I haven't had enough coffee yet. Uh, it's lunchtime. Come on. <laughs> well, where are you? Oh, that's right. You're in Nashville. Yeah, uh, we get up late here on Sundays. Uh, no, you know, the, the emphasis is always, you know, when I teach a seminar or whatever, I ask, uh, what camera did you use? And I always hear about the lenses, the camera, the frame rate, the, uh, the codec. There's a lot of things uh, that they, they know uh, intensely about. And then I ask them what kind of microphone they used, and they just look at me blankly. Oh, that's a good one. Well, you know, speaking of that, what, uh, you know, often people, I've had jobs where people use the onboard 
mic on the camera to record and it sounds it sounds terrible and you know it sounds as good as is that mic that far away from the subject you know is going to sound what um what simple advice would you give and i'm th- i'm thinking kind of in the realm of like a lower budget filmmakers that they can put in their kit to get them the best quality audio at a uh when they're thinking about price and I don't know if that necessarily means like a specific mic model, but, you know, just, just some general miking things that as you guys, like, uh, Lawrence, you're in the documentary world. You do a lot of documentary work. And I think about Woody does a lot of reality TV work. Like what, when you want to get good recorded audio in for your mix, what is, what's the simple hardware solution that a lot of people may not be, may not have ever thought about or may not be spending money on because they're too worried about lenses and new cameras and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, the best way I could answer that is that there's two things. There's a hardware consideration, but that there's also a technique consideration. Um, and both of those, I would say, are pretty important. Um, one thing is, as far as technique goes, that I like to emphasize is think about ways to detach the mic from the camera. Um, a lot of times people forget that cameras can zoom, but microphones don't zoom. So they'll have a, even if it's a really nice microphone, it might be mounted on a camera that's recording someone from a great distance away and they're zooming in with their lens, but the audio still sounds like it's across the room, even though the picture is a really nice tight close up. And so thinking of ways to put the microphone on a boom pole or have someone that can can boom or put the mic on a stand closer to the person that's you know speaking uh, or lav microphones, things like that that's sort of one aspect is um because the essential of recording like when you break it down the basics are pretty simple it's get the best microphone you can as close to the sound source as possible with the least amount of noise of the world interfering with that it's just in practice where those simple steps become very very complicated especially on a film shoot or a documentary shoot or something nonfiction. Um, but I think, yeah, for thinking of ways to, to, you know, having someone that can be a boom operator is really, really handy because now your microphone's not attached to the camera. You have freedom of movement. Having lavaliers that are on people, the microphones will now move with the speaker and move with the subjects around the room. And, uh, and I think that's one of the first, I think, classic mistakes is people that just kind of attach a microphone to a camera and think, oh, I'm great. I've got sound coming into the camera. That's all I need to do. Um, so that's what I'd focus in terms of at least uh, stuff like kind of thinking from the, the workflow aspect. Um, from the hardware aspect, um, obviously, that's you know a much bigger question in regards to budget and equipment and things like that. And um, um, Woody might be uh, able or you might be able to better sort of uh, talk to that uh, a little bit more. Um, but uh, I always like to at least kind of start with yeah, the mindset of the best ways to kind of capture sound and then go into, OK, what's your budget? What technology do you have and what can you do with the resources that you have available. Well, I think there's no shortage of lots of quality mics out there for affordable prices. And, and, and this podcast is not meant to be a place to discuss, you know, the Rode or uh, Sennheiser Tween 1912 X43, you know, versus the X419 or any kind of crap like that. But you said something there that um, I think it's worth we're talking about. And what you may be able to answer this one, um, boom versus love or both of them. Go. Uh, that's an easy one. Uh, both. Uh, you know, but why? Wait, that- but that's worse. You got to have a boom operator. You got to have someone to to mic people up. You got to hide the lav often where you can't see it. You've got to worry about where those two those two um, outputs from two different mics are going. That seems like a lot of work. Why? Why? Why both? 
Well, I'm going to tell you a secret. Uh, filmmaking is a lot of work. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Takes, whoa. Uh, <laughs> it takes a lot of effort and it takes expertise and it takes equipment. And, you know, there really is no excuse anymore when um, you hear terrible audio. Micro quality microphones are available inexpensively nowadays. Quality multi-track recorders are available uh, nowadays. And it really comes down to mindset. Um, you know, again, we're talking about getting the shot. And as Lawrence pointed out, uh, the camera will zoom in. So they've neatly framed a shot, zoomed in, and they have the exact picture that they're looking for. But outside of that picture isn't a tremendous amount of noise, say, uh, because they are not able to zoom out that noise. Uh, oftentimes when someone calls me with a job that needs to get quote unquote fixed, it's because they have too much room. Hey, can you reduce some of the room? It, it sounds like they're really far away. And but I that's, say, well, that's probably just like my uh, blue Yeti thing sounds when people hear me talk in this, in this podcast, just by the way. <laughs> uh, no comment on any specific piece of gear. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I talk about oftentimes is, first of all, with documentary film, uh, and a lot of sit-down interviews. I do a lot of uh, docu-series and those kinds of shows where people are uh, seated doing uh, interviews. And there's no reason that you can't have a boom on a mic stand out of frame. And, uh, you know, our, our ears like the sound of boom mics because we're used to hearing rooms, uh, you know, in, in our ears. And a lavalier is a very tight sound, so there's not a lot of room in it. Yeah, I've always thought that too. When 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 I'm mixing uh, projects, usually when if if you've got a good boom and a good lav, the boom is usually the more naturalistic sounding one, and that's always the one you want to try and target to kind of use um, uh, in an, in any given situation. Um, uh, there's just yeah something about a really really nice good clean uh, boom microphone sound that does feel much more naturalistic to my ears than than lav microphones, which even if they're really fantastic microphones and uh, attached really, really well. There is a dryness to it. Um, but again, that sometimes is also when you're in a really noisy environment, sometimes you the, that, that sort of dryness and that sort of close proximity of the, of, the, of the lavalier can be the thing that's really, really necessary in terms of trying to, you know, get rid of some of that, that background sound. But like Woody said, yeah, having both is always the best option because uh, then you've got a kind of a safety net. If one mic's not working very well, you've got the other one you can kind of rely on. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions in regards to booms and lofts. First one I would ask is, what about a, what do you do when, in, as as a, as a audio mixer with better ears than a lot of editors and directors and whatnot have, if you're in a situation where you're in post production and you have recorded both a boom and a lav, and as the people are going through the offline edit, there becomes a discussion of which one sounds better, and you've got one person who says the boom sounds better, one person says the lav sounds better. Is that is that something that you just say, you know what, this needs to go to post audio, we'll let we'll let them decide? Or is that sort of more of a subjective thing as far as, you know, quote unquote, which mic sounds better? Are you talking about in the picture editorial process? Yeah, yeah, because you know, you're there very often you're you're going through, especially with interviews and stuff, and, and there's a and people want to hear when they know there were multiple mics being recorded, they want to hear one mic over the other. Let's hear what that boom sounds like. All right, now let me hear what the lav sounds like. And I've had situations as an editor where I usually probably go toward the boom because I also like the sound of that better. But then 
I've been told, no, no, we need to use the, the, the lav mic here, often because it just, it almost sounds, because it sounds louder, or maybe because it does sound a little bit, bit closer. And there's been a debate of which is the proper mic or which is the better mic to use for the, fi- for the, final, for the final mix. Yeah, yeah. For for me, what I tend to do is uh, I ask to send everything across. Um, what uh, sometimes some productions I work with, um, they'll edit with all the channels and they'll leave all of them open. That's totally fine. Uh, other times, they'll select the, what sounds best to them. Um, like you said, in editorial. Um, because it's just easier for them to listen to what they're cutting when they're not hearing all the open channels. Uh, Both of those are totally fine. Um, I do find that a lot of times really, really great directors and editors also have great sets of ears um, and good sensibilities. Um, A lot of times what's picked is the right choice, um, but I still like to have all the channels sent to me. Um, That way you can see what the other options are. And then just in case, oftentimes... um, you know, editors might have really, really great sensibilities, but they may not be listening um, uh, in the most well-treated rooms or on the nicest of speakers. So sometimes you just can't hear things that you you then will hear on the dub stage. So having all the options allows me to uh, um, switch things. And then sometimes, too, with the tools that you have, this sound, you know, this one track may sound better on its own, but I know that with the tools I have, such as equalization and noise reduction, I could take the one that at first glance may sound a little bit worse, but I might be able to patch it up a little bit better. But having options is always a, is a, is a great thing. Um, and I like to try and prepare when you have the time and the budget for it, like prepare and cut all the different tracks so that if we do hit a situation where we're in a mix and we're using let's say, you know, the, the boom mic, but the director really, really likes the way the lav mic sound, then it's just a button push and you can just flip it over and flip to the other one. So having that, um, having that, you know, having all the options available, um, within reason is, is always, is always nice. Um, I will say, uh, one thing I do like to ask, um, is instead of deleting tracks, when you're picture editing, even if you're choosing tracks, um, let's say you're editing with the boom. I still like to keep the other tracks there, but drop their gain down to negative infinity. That way, when I get the session delivered to me from editorial, I could see the tracks that have the volume are the ones that they chose, but the other tracks are still present underneath at negative infinity clip gain. And then that allows me to see what decisions have already been made in editorial, but it also allows me to still turn on and sample all the other tracks and things to see what the options are and make my own decisions from that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, and that's something you know I had on my list to talk about was, and we can kind of go and segue into that right now is the idea of turning the audio over from picture edit to um, to sound edit because I think you you hit the nail on the head if you did use multiple mics, uh, lob and boom or more, that the idea of not giving one of those to the audio mixer because you know someone thinks that one sounds better than the other is kind of crazy because like you said ears look um the environment you're mixing in the tools that you have always give uh give more i was going to ask is there ever a place where you kind of mix those two together to get a certain a certain kind of sound or is it usually no you stick with only boom or you stick with only love uh well on a scene by scene basis yeah uh, I was just going to say, on a scene-by-scene basis, uh, you know, you want to sort of stick with one or the other. Uh, oftentimes, uh, when there's multiple mics in a room, they might be phasing with one another. So if uh, one person is speaking, and I, I wouldn't leave three mics open, say, if that's what you're asking, on that one person. Uh, sometimes, you know, we have to match the boom because uh, we like the way the boom sounds. It's it's a, it's a roomy-sounding um 
scene and and we like the way that sounds but uh, a lot of takes have been ruined for whatever reason and we have to reach for the lav uh, oftentimes we'll just uh, you know try to find a matching reverb to uh, to regain that room sound back well you know what he is uh, working in duck and uh, reality type situations which you do you're probably often faced with not just a lav and a boom but uh, uh, individual mic on you know times ten or twenty people when when you've got a show with lots of people that are that are being mic'd, is that something that you find is a huge mess as it comes over from picture editorial? Or are there are there certain things that you would like to happen before the handoff to audio if you have situations where you've got lots and lots of mics you have to go through? Um, yeah, I mean. It's it's going to be on a per show basis because of the production company. In some cases, uh, if you have a documentary that uh, that's been worked on for the last seven years and it's been through a lot of different hands, it it might be a real mess, uh, and you're just going to fight your way through it. I mean, we we basically start from scratch. We're going to deconstruct that edit, and we're going to look at every source that we have. And typically, I will ask for more and more. I mean, everything in life typically is less is more. But for audio post, I always say more is more because I want it all. I want the backgrounds and I want anything that was recorded. Um, I can find a way to make use of. And um, when I do the series television, which I've done an enormous amount of that kind of stuff, it really is um, production uh, independent, meaning some production companies might uh, provide me with just their cut version of the audio. So I might have, you know, uh, X number of tracks and that's it. And then I have to go back to them and say, um, you know, actually in this scene, this person sounds off mic for the entire scene. Do, do you have that mic? And so then we'll get into a process of sort of requesting mics back and forth because they haven't provided them. Uh, some uh, production companies that I've worked with will give you everything. So if there's a scene with 10 mics, you'll have a scene with 10 mics. Um, Which I would guess that's preferable because then you don't have to go back and be doing a bunch of asking. And if you don't need it, you don't, you don't ever touch it. Yeah, I mean, the first part of the effort is, uh, is just sorting it, right? So I get the AAF and I just start cutting through it and saying what's usable, what's not usable. Oh, you know what? I can't use that, but there's a great car pass that's very unique sounding or whatever it is. I'm going to trim that out and throw that in a little bin for myself. So I'm going to I'm going to sort of chop through each aspect of the show as I go and if it's all there, yeah, then I can just sort of hit the ground running. It uh, it becomes a very laborious process, and and I've been in this situation many times. I mean, it's just the work. What do you you know? It's what you've got to do. But um, when all of a sudden you just end up with three pages of requests, you know, hey, do you have a mic for this person? You have a mic for this person. You have a mic for this person. And oftentimes I find that they do, uh, which is great. Uh, and sometimes when they don't, we have to figure that out too. Well, when you take yeah, I think I. I was just going to jump in there and say, too, along those lines, like, what, what are you saying? I think, um, you know, so oftentimes what I find is the effort that gets put in at the beginning ends up saving so much more time later on down the line. And when so, too many corners are cut at the beginning and trying to just get things fat, you know, to us fast, 
it generally ends up taking more time later on trying to fix things or like what he was saying, going back to try and hunt down extra tracks and things like that. And so I, I do find that things like being organized and good communication and good workflow and putting in those those sort of efforts into making sure all the tracks are present and stuff like that at the beginning does usually end up saving time in the long run. Oh yeah. Communi- communication, uh, no matter what discipline we're talking about or what, what anytime you've got multiple people collaborating, communication is always, always a key. And, and that's often, uh, that's often kind of overlooked. Um, you know, since, since we're talking a little bit about the handoff from, from picture to, uh, to audio posts, what, um, I often think people don't think about when they're editing is how to organize the audio to make life better for um, for audio audio posts. Like, give us an idea, Lawrence, of what you like to see when you get that AAF file back from uh, from picture and you open it up in Pro Tools for the first time. What is it you like to see that makes your uh, that makes you smile, makes your heart happy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have necessarily like a certain strict um, workflow because, as you said, every single project is unique. That's one of the great and fun challenges. Yeah, of but working you, in you know when media. your heart's happy um, versus not happy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think having, first off, just a general sense of organization is really, really handy. I think if your clips are everywhere all over the timeline, uh, if it's hard for the person who made it that way, think of how much harder it is for someone else coming in blind and trying to organize that. So whenever I see any sort of general organization, such as like the basics are like usually keep your dialogue, you know, tracks like clips like clustered together in one set of tracks and your FX in another set and your music in another set. Any of that sort of stuff um, is is pretty basic organization and is really useful. Um, but yeah, any sense of, of organization in general, um, the good uh, editors that I've worked with, when I get a turnover from them, um, uh, I can you can see there's a logic and a flow. And everyone's slightly different. It's kind of fun being able to open the AFs and kind of see what your edit timelines look like. It's I, I always like to say it's like peeking into someone's journal and kind of seeing what their brains are like when they're editing. Um, but as long as there's a discernible organization, that's fantastic because we're always going to take the tracks and then bring them into our own templates and sort them and organize them in our own way. But starting with an organized um, template is really, really fantastic. And then there's also the sort of standard things like uh, handle size. Um, most uh, editing pl- programs, they default to one second handles. That's usually not enough to work with. Um, Especially when for a lot of work I do is in documentary and nonfiction where you're not scripted, you don't usually have six takes of the same line. So a lot of times I'll ask for things like 40 second handles on my uh, turnovers. That way I can get the line, but I also have 40 seconds on each side to comb through and look for things like bits of silence or room tone I could use for patching alternate words if a word gets screwed up somewhere or something like that. So um, I would say after organization, I would say handle size is always something that's uh, important um, for me to get. I I pride myself on my quality timelines. I turn over to audio posts, by the way. Just, uh, just, yeah, just so we know. It's really handy, yeah. Because, again, someone's coming in blind and has to, usually under a very intense time crunch, has to kind of hit the ground running. And when you see some sort of organization that, that is discernible, like that, so much uh, so much easier than if his clips are just everywhere over the timeline and you're hunting through and trying to figure out what you're looking at. Yeah, and, and, and it's not hard for the editor to be organized. If you, if you, if you start it from the beginning, it's not hard to, to keep it that way, even with, with large large mixes where you've got lots and lots of mics to... Um, to, uh, to, to organize as well. Um, so editors be organized, don't be lazy. That's the, you know, that's what you can take out of that. Um, yeah. Out, out of that. Yeah. You know, workflow and communication are always so important when you're in any type of collaborative project. 
Yeah, I, no, I, absolutely. And I think that um, there's really no reason for uh, picture in an audio post not to not to communicate from the from the very beginning because there are you know, I've gotten notes and suggestions from audio before that I can implement on the front end that uh, makes the audio post process go faster. And, you know, sometimes it's a day rate or, or an hourly rate, and there's no reason for it to not go, not go faster. Because if the, if you guys are cleaning up the offline craft editors mess, I mean, it's no fun for anybody. I mean, you may, maybe make it some more money if it's, if it's hourly, but you know, there's just no, I don't think there's any really excuse for that other than, laziness on the um you know on the editor's part to uh to be, to be quite honest yeah and and i also have like a um like my i have a sort of standard audio post like turnover guideline sheet that i like to forward before the turnovers get made uh, it's just an, again it's an easy way to communicate sort of to the editorial department hey these are best practices these are the things i usually look for and i've got it's like a two-page document of like these are the things that will make our lives easier in post audio and and starting the conversation with that before the edit, the AAFs or, or OMFs are made um, is just, a, again, a great way to sort of troubleshoot problems early. And it saves more time than if you get something that's wrong or broken and then you have to go back and fix it later. So, again, a huge proponent on uh, communication and, uh, sure. and workflow and things like that. Well, let's talk about um, something that I think people think that is magic when it comes to professional audio post-production um, mixer. I don't know like what the correct term is. An audio engineer? Are you a mixer? Like what the right word is. But you, you know what I'm saying. Fixing bad audio. And I've seen examples where people just, oh, no, someone can fix that. We can fix that. And, you know, that pop that says, oh, that, that noise, it can be fixed. You can just, you can just take it out. Talk a little bit about uh, maybe what do you start with you because I, I think about reality shows as probably being a nightmare of bad audio. What you know? What what is that threshold in a sense? And this is not just one thing, but you know, what is that sort of threshold where the the audio might be unsalvageable, even though someone thinks it is? Uh, well, I think the main misunderstanding is uh, microphone technique. So if I hear uh, off camera uh, audio with a lot of room, no gain, um, you know, I, it, it's very difficult to explain to somebody uh, that's not really going to be fixable. Well, you have de-reverb. Yes, <laughs> that's not the, that's not your problem. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, you have uh, compression and EQ. You can just EQ that and, and get the gain back up because you have all these great gain tools now. And, um, you know, the... What I, what I always say to them is if your DP shot the entire scene out of focus, do you have a plug-in for that? Can you fix that? I like that. I like that. You know what I mean? They can't. And I'm like, well, that's what you just did, right? You shot the whole scene's audio poorly. And so, you know, one of the things that people always ask me is what, what is the single best expense that I can provide for my production? And I always say uh, a sound person, <laughs> professional sound person is the best expense that you will make because you wouldn't hire Uncle Joe to shoot your movie, right? But you will hire Uncle Joe to be your boom operator. And Uncle Joe can't hold his arms straight and he gets distracted. And then all of a sudden the entire scene is off mic because Uncle Joe didn't really understand that he needed to point that at the bridge of that person's nose. You know what I mean? Um, and so there's a lot of, a lot of that. I, I think I veered off from the question. What was the question? 
<laughs> the question is more about like, you know, what is the threshold or it may just be some specific examples of when audio becomes unsalvageable, unsalvageable. Um, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head is, and that's part of just, just post-production in general these days, whether it's picture or even graphics or um, audio is that so many people kind of know the lingo now and they've got, you know, Premiere running on their system because they got the Adobe suite and they'll say those things like, oh yeah, just EQ it. Can you just, don't you have RX? Just fix it. You know, they, they know enough to often tell you what to do, but yet they don't know how to actually take whatever tool they have mentioned in the, in one breath and actually, actually do something with it. And I think that's a, that's kind of a, a you know, a big pain point across the board these days. Well, but, you, um, you know, th th that's the largest issue that I find is that people have a, just a, a complete misunderstanding about a recorded uh, audio. And that something that I discussed, you know, uh, of a microphone being too far away is an easily fixable thing as if that's a noise reduction problem. It is not a noise reduction problem. If you have a 60 cycle hum, that is a noise reduction problem. If you have clicking throughout your tracks, that's a noise reduction problem. If your microphone is not close enough to your talent, that's not a noise reduction problem. That's a technique and a, 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 it's a, a larger issue that you have. But specifically, there are any number of things that are pretty simple to fix nowadays. Like I said, hum, clicks, um, you know, those kinds of things, computers are pretty smart and can sort of look ahead and, and, and fix those kinds of things. But oftentimes yeah, those are not the things that are asked for. Yeah. I was just going to, just going to say that, you know, the, the, the number one thing for me is, uh, poorly recorded audio, uh, that people think is a noise reduction I issue and you can just run it through some box and all of a sudden it's just going to sound like a beautifully recorded piece of audio. Yeah, no, and I think that that's, uh, I want to say, jump in too and say, um, be, if you're on set and you're recording, um, on set or recording production audio, just one thing that's so important is to be aware of your surroundings and be aware of what you can control. Um, it's always frustrating when I have to spend 20 or 30 minutes trying to fix some dialogue where an a, uh, air conditioner is running in the background when it could have taken two seconds to just turn the air conditioner off in the first place before it was recorded. And, and time is always something that's so... Then it gets hot. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and time and post, you, have, you always have so little time to do the things you need to do. I'd much rather spend my time being creative than trying to fix problems and things like that. And so many problems that end up coming are things that, you know, sometimes are unavoidable because, you know, that's just the case. But a lot of times it's things that could have been fixed if someone had just taken a moment to be aware of their surroundings and done something to correct a sound problem before the take was before the take was was made on set well let, let's let's call out a specific product here and talk about how great it is and how it may have caused you know much pain for for some of us and and i'll i'll it's isotope rx which if you don't know people listen to this isotope rx has been a long used uh audio suite of post-production tools that can achieve some major major magic with things like you know, fixing bad sound, removing um, noise, clicks. It's, it's just, it's amazing what the tool can do. But um, I would ask this question, has, could it be that in a sense it has made things more difficult? Like for example, I remember when they introduced the, uh, like the D Russell um, filter or whatever, the, the D Russell tool that would kind of help fix the mi microphone rustling sounds. 
are there tools like that that have been that have kind of made people lazy because they might like oh you know what we can just de-rustle that and we'll that, that'll be fine like we don't we don't have to be as careful in what we're capturing because we can fix it in post well i would hope to think that someone doesn't go into it thinking ah you know what i'm hearing a lot of rustling you know we'll just uh, we we can get that later uh, I would hope that uh, a filmmaker would be smart enough to say, hey, maybe we should reposition this mic. You know, um, I, I do some documentary work. I certainly don't do the uh, amount of documentary work that, that Lawrence does. But, um, you know, documentary is a different beast. Obviously, you, you, you get the general as he's walking by or you don't. Uh, and that's it. Um, and so if there's a lot of rustling in that, you know, you're going to have to live with it. But as uh, Lawrence said, uh, you know, so many things could be mitigated from the start. And then it's not a matter of having to fix things. I don't know if RX is um, thought of in that way. I think, it's, I think it's always after the fact. I do think that after the fact, someone has a real mess on their hands of audio and somebody has said to them or they have some tangential knowledge about the, the kind of tools that are available and say, oh, that can all be fixed. Don't worry. Uh, in, in which case, you know, sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. Sometimes D. Russell works wonderfully and sometimes it doesn't. You know, it's, you know, every recording is going to be completely different. It's going to have its own issues. And there, there is no Band-Aid across the board. There's just tools that can help us, you know, mitigate issues. But as uh, Lawrence said, um, you know, it, it's it's really painful sometimes when we when we look at things that we're just like, God, why didn't you just turn that thing off? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. they're like, well, you can you can use noise reduction and remove that. I'm like, well, I could, but you know, you could have turned it off. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true, and and I like to say I I, I use uh, Isotope RX all the time. I love it. It's a great suite of tools, and I try to have as many tools as possible at my disposal, just because you never know what's going to be thrown at you. Um, but I will say the the a really great thing to always keep in mind is, you know, in terms of expectations, is here in post we could always make bad audio sound better, but the only way you can't. We still can't make bad audio sound good. The only way to end with good audio is to start with with mm. with with good I audio. Like that. And yeah. It, yeah. So, so, but we can take what you've done and we can make it better. But if it's bad to start with, it no matter all the tools we have at our disposal, it still likely won't be good. You want to start with that. Well, here's a, and this is probably an, e an easy one, um, but I think often in this day and age, with with budgets what they are and the tools we have at, at our disposal for a relatively affordable price, that audio proper audio mixing and audio sweetening is often cut from the budget early on. Not early on, but because they think, oh well, the editor can do it, or we don't have the money for that. What would you say to someone who is putting the budget together and they're starting to? decide that they, you know what, we, we're going to cut our audio sweetener because we're just going to let the editor handle that. Like, if, if, what would you tell somebody to not do that? I mean, I think for me, it's always a creative conversation. You want to, the projects that I look to, to work for is not the ones that say, hey, we're trying to do this as fast and cheap as possible. But the projects that come to me and say, look, we're trying to do some sort of creative storytelling with our audio here and let's start the discussion there. And I find if you start at that place, 
and you can then you can kind of try and determine well if this is your goal to do this with your storytelling then this is the amount of of time and resources we'll need to achieve that and i find that that turns it usually into a much more sort of important part of the process than if you're just looking at a spreadsheet of numbers and and cutting things and i have total sympathy to anyone who's trying to make a film it's 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 expensive and budgets are always going to be tight no one ever has the time or the money that they wish they had in order to do something um but yeah usually a lot of times if if people if if your post audio is such an afterthought that you cut it those usually aren't the people or the projects that are really thinking about sound as a creative storytelling force and those aren't usually the kinds of projects that i would personally <laughs> want to be want to be involved in but i think if you start really thinking of your audio as a storyteller then you can start allocating budget to that and its importance as well I was also going to add that, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, picture editors have a lot of strengths, right? They cut picture and sound editors have a lot of strengths. They cut sound and mixers mix. And there is a reason that we're all doing separate things. And if somebody wants to get paid, um, you know, they're going to have to spit out not just a wonderful sounding mix, right? They're going to have to have a mix that meets the specifications, right? You're going to have to have the the LKFS uh correct you're going to have to have your true peaks correct you're going to have to have your splits correct you know um even i don't know 15 years ago when i was doing series for food network uh and the uh, digibeta was the master tape of choice you know we spit out four tracks i spit out a dialogue only track a emony mono track emony stands for music and effects yep. and uh and then the mix left and right and that was the deliverable and certainly back then a picture editor could you know uh get that done but today with the amount of archiving uh and such uh the deliverables uh can be insane you know you could deliver three different versions of just the dialogue only track um and uh a mix minus might be mix minus music uh or it might be mix minus vo and typically a picture editor is not going to lay out their audio tracks in a way that makes it so that creating all those uh deliverable stems is is an easy feat right that's what we do right that's the first thing we do when we deconstruct that aaf we uh, sort that audio in a way that we know, well, first of all, we can make it mix it so it sounds fantastic, but we can also uh, deliver what, what we need to deliver. And so that's, that's a huge part of the job as well. Uh, that, and when you start cutting that away and saying, well, my, my nephew has Premiere Pro, I think he can get that done for you. Um, what's your deliverable list? Well, you know, that's kind of goes back to a couple of different things. Not really goes back, but you're talking technical side versus the uh, kind of versus the, versus the creative side. And I think uh, what Lawrence said, you said something that's really important there, which is thinking about the audio part as as storytelling and not just you know getting getting levels right in in a sense. So I think I would ask this question out of that little discussion is what not what is, but talk a little bit about the idea that the audio post-production process can be more than just getting the levels right and making sure that, you know, that, that you get the splits and stems that you need, but a creative side of what you guys can do to help 
sort of the you know to tell the to tell the story better. I, I think people don't even often think about in a, say in a corporate piece that you can do things that will in the sound that will enhance the overall viewing experience. Like what's what's yeah what you know what's some of the artistic side of things? It's you know not it's not the technical world. Very broad question. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why I love the the job that we do is that we are storytellers. You know, um, we're telling our stories with audio, and a lot of times I kind of look at it almost as if we can kind of create an invisible script that goes underneath the main script and and supports it in its own sort of unique way. Um, audio, like you said, is sometimes a very subliminal thing, and you can use those tools to your to your advantage in terms of loudness or softness or the world building in terms of creating atmospheres and backgrounds around you the way that music's mixed interplay all of that stuff is is storytelling and and whenever i approach anything um it's always from a storytelling aspect of what's this, what's the story trying to be in this scene um what's the story trying to do in this piece uh, regardless of whether it's a corporate promo or a documentary film or a fiction film um every single choice you make can have story uh um implications you know regardless like the type of footsteps someone uses they walk heavily or walk softly that can say a lot about their character uh the moments of quietness the spaces you hear in between dialogue all of that's a storytelling aspect and i think when i work with directors and filmmakers and editors who are really thinking about every aspect of the film in regards to story um that's when you you know end up with really really sort of powerful um powerful projects and and yeah story you know audio is again a very subliminal thing like again i do i think we're a very visual species sometimes people don't they may feel what they're trying to express with audio but they don't know how to put it into words or put it into action um but again that's why they're they're usually that's why they're hiring us that's why they're trying to work with uh with with sound people um is is for that creative story arc but that's that's always been the driving force behind everything that that i work on is i love the storytelling aspects of a film and filmmaking and specifically the power that audio sound design mixing music can can bring to that story and that's always at the forefront of of everything that i try and do yeah no that was uh that that was that was that that was good stuff. Um, what do you, what about you know? I, I think about and I go back to kind of reality um, reality TV in the sense that you know it is it is what it is. What you capture is what you is what you have. But when you jump in deep into a reality show or you know something for the Food Network, a competition show type of thing, what are some things that you're doing that is beyond just you know getting the levels right and making sure you know the you can hear what everybody's saying? Are, are there those creative elements too, when you're in something like a reality show or a competition show? Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, the amount of work that we put in, I think even the producers of the shows don't really understand. Um, when I'm doing a series, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you know, some of them are, I like, I prefer the term unscripted to reality because <laughs> sorry. No, it's fine. I, I've done a lot of reality, and reality to me, of course, is not real. Yes. <laughs> so uh, that's why I try and make that distinction sometimes. Um, but, um, you know, I put in everything. Uh, I approach every single job I do as if it's a feature film. So if two people are patting each other on the back, I put in uh, back pats, and I put in every footstep, and I reverb those footsteps according to those spaces. And um, the amount of realism that 
uh, all that work uh, provides the story, no one would know the difference, um, really, other than me. Uh, and it's a very subliminal thing. But if you have a, say, a very cacophonous uh, scene, uh, and there's a lot going on, and it's a, a very dramatic moment, and you've sort of pitched it to this loud point, and then it ends with this person just softly walking away and quietly closing a door, you know, they didn't record those footsteps. They didn't put that door in. And, and so oftentimes I find myself when I'm working with producers on these shows um, where we've added a whole lot of those types of uh, realistic elements to the project, um, they might go, oh, hey, you know, that, that's a really nice moment. I didn't really realize how, how nice that moment was after that giant scene. And it's because they just heard silence. Or they slapped some music underneath with a sting that I brought way down and then brought back up. And so it's little things like that that, that really enhance the story, but in, in a very subliminal way. Yeah, I think that's, you know, if you could, if, if uh, people who are making sometimes these budgetary decisions or, or even those who are sort of signing off on the final program could, could watch the show without that sort of creative thing we were just talking about that, that, that you guys kind of bring to it and then watch it with. I think the the, uh, the emotional impact would be would be dr dramatically different. They might not be able to put their fingers on it and peg exactly why you know this scene worked better than it did you know when I watched it the first time. But that's I think you hit the nail on the head exactly why why that uh, and that goes back to the whole emotional thing that we talked about uh, a while ago with with audio designers, audio mixers, audio um, engineers, you know all all of those being being storytellers and helping them um, move the story along. I mean, this, I think the sad truth is that people don't uh, really have any clue what Lawrence and I do. I mean, in the sense of the amount of work, I mean, certainly some of our clients do and such, but, but you know, the, the regular people, when they say to me, what do you do? And I say that I'm a, a mixer or I'm a supervising sound editor, 90% of the time, if they don't work in the industry or they don't know anything about filmmaking, they will say to me, oh, so you add the music? Yeah, <laughs> and so that's that's sort of the level of because people think that they go and record a show and all those footsteps and all those door slams and all those car passes and all the the bird backgrounds and all those shifting things that we do that create mood that create time that create space right that's that's what we're doing right we're creating all these different colors and feelings of emotions now oftentimes um, unscripted producers. From their point of view, the only thing that's going to create emotion is a loud voice or a lot of music. And oh so, my when, gosh. In, in, you know, in my work, when I start paring that down and I might suggest to them, you know, we added some stuff here. And if I just pull the cue out at this point, you know, just wanted to see what you think. And then they'll be like, oh, actually, that works very interesting. Hey, let's go back to that other scene. Can we pull some of the music out there? And then I feel like I'm, I'm sort of really getting across uh, some more of those storytelling ideas that, that we've been discussing. Yeah, and to, to jump into, I thought that was so absolutely well said, uh, Woody. And, and some of my absolute favorite moments are always these, it's, it's never usually the big grand moments. My favorite moments are always the, the little, the tiny little decisions, the small invisible ones that create these sort of storytelling moments. Yeah, um, or when you pull out a breath sometimes. When you what? Yeah, exactly. 
right? Oh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. that was just softly recorded. And you, and you realize, wow, that punctuates this scene, that little yeah. breath. Yeah, exactly. Like those types of things are the little, uh, the little editorial things. Um, I wanted to go back to sort of an example of one of these like minor moments that seem like a very small decision, but have a creative lift. Uh, that's the, not involving, you know, sound design or any of this sort of stuff. Um, in terms of what the, most people picture sound design as, in terms of like adding, you know, dragons and robots and stuff. Um, but as I worked on a um, uh, a a documentary series about the political the primary seasons, and there was one moment where it was a candidate's last debate, and he did terribly during the debate, and he afterwards that debate performance he dropped out of the campaign. But in the way that the edit was structured, we had the his debate performance, and then the next scene was cuts to an exterior, and it's a wintry exterior, and it's snow and trees. And as he was talking in the debate, uh, the decision we made was just to just slowly start ramping down his audio, ramping down his audio, so that his voice started to disappear, and we pre-lapped in the sounds of the winter and the sounds of that exterior. And before we cut to it, and it created the sense of you really felt like this candidate, this was their literal winter of of discontent. And you really got the sense that this person is about to drop out. And it's just that all we did was just lower a little bit of volume from the speaking and pre-lap in some of the sounds of the winter from the, the next shot. That's and great. it created a really great emotional storytelling moment. And it was a very simple, uh, again, uh, edit and sound um, levels trick. Well, that goes, you know, again, it's, uh, it's, it's storytelling does not stop at the picture. And I think that's, um, that's, that's a good thing that we can all, all, uh, all learn from. Let's transition for the last uh, few minutes we have, and let's talk technical for a little bit, because one debate I often see raging on the internet, uh, because debates rage on the internet, is when you're, uh, when people are mixing audio, what, what levels in a sense do they mix to? How hot is too hot? Can you get up to, you know, can you just start to touch zero or, or minus three or speak a little bit into, into, into levels and, and where people need to mix their, mix their stuff. You want to start with that, Lawrence? Um, yeah, yeah. So it, again, it depends on this, on the project. Um, and it's one of the things I always like to ask at the very beginning of a project is what are the deliverables at the end? And Woody touched on deliverables before because in the modern days, like they can be very, very complex and things like different TV networks will have different specs and things like that. So, but instead of getting too complex with my answer, for me, I tend to kind of look at it as three general sort of buckets. I look at it as with the film I'm working on, is it gonna play in theaters theatrically? Is it gonna play on TV or is it gonna play on the internet? And all three of those things tend to have different loudness ranges that I try to target. Uh, theatric, uh, theatrical films tend to have the widest dynamic range, the most space between the quietest moments and the loudest moments. Uh, and you can be a little bit more subtle. Uh, TV is a little bit more compressed. Um, and then Internet tends to be the most sort of compressed in terms of less difference between your softest and loudest points. And um, um and the and things with the internet that have to kind of compete with like how people listen to music and things like that. So those are the sort of three sorts of of ranges. Uh, these aren't hard and fast like rules, but in my mind, when I'm mixing for those, um, I tend to look for a lot of times in post. We'll measure our average loudness um, using uh, there's a sort of um, specific. Uh, 
uh, measurement style that you use for your average loudness range, uh, LKFS. Um, and usually for theatrical films, it's sort of like somewhere between like minus 28 or minus 31 averages where TV is usually minus 23 or minus 24 and internet can be you know, minus 14 to minus 16 or something like that in terms of your average loudness levels. Um, peak levels are a little bit different. Um, you know, a peak level doesn't tell you as much about your audio as your average. I could clap my hands or snap my fingers and that can make a really loud peak, but it's not necessarily a loud sound. Um, but a lot of times for things like TV, um, a lot of networks commonly have a minus two true peak ceiling where your audio can't go beyond that. Um, and, uh, theatrical film and internet don't really have that but there are best practices in terms of um the ceilings you can go sometimes for internet content i'll keep it at minus two sometimes i'll go down to minus 0.5 um it really depends on the content and where it's being played um but uh every single time i work for something one of my first questions is where is this going to be played how is this going to be seen and are there technical specs that we need to hit? Because that's a very important thing to know from the get-go. You don't want to be surprised by that at the end. So so you may, uh, if you're delivering, let's say you're doing a commercial spot that's going to play in front of a movie, you know, as you're, as you're waiting, or a trailer or something like that, it's also going to be on broadcast TV, but it's also going to be uh, have a life on the internet. You may deliver three completely different mixes of the exact same show to compensate for those very differences between where it's going to be viewed yeah and you'd have to because the the you usually for commercials that play you know before trailers and movie theaters have a very specific spec that you have to hit and that's a very different spec than anything that would be a commercial playing on tv and that would likely be something you'd want to modify for the internet even though the internet often doesn't it's a little bit more of a wild west you don't have as many specs you still want to know how most people are listening to it on smaller speakers and in competition with music and things and you want to adjust it so that it plays the best it can play um on all those different mediums well, are, are um, you are you keeping in mind uh, that someone may just only watch this on their phone and a phone speaker is way different than uh, a tv speaker versus a, a theatrical speaker like how, how do you how do you mix for a phone yeah I, for, for me it's always you know translation you know you want to It'll never be absolutely as pristine listening to something on a phone as someone would with like a really fantastic sound setup. But you want to make sure that the essence of it can come across, the basics of it can come across. You want to make sure that it translates well. Uh, so there's always a little bit of a, of a, of a push and pull between that uh, in terms of if I make something really, really subtle, it might sound great in a movie theater. But if someone's watching it on a phone, it'll get lost. And you kind of you want to target like where the most people will be watching this and then also where are all the different ways people are going to be watching this and try and find a good uh a good balance of translation between those um and i'll let i'll let woody jump in as well too um with with his expertise on the subject well i, I mean i think you defined it perfectly and that and that's exactly right where is this thing going is it going to be on television is it going to be in the theater or is it going to be you know an internet on a laptop thing so those are absolute discussions that you have to have. Sometimes you're trying to hedge your bets uh, and uh, because they're not quite sure. Um, and so you might mix so that you can pass the television spec, but mix the dynamic range enough so that even though you're, you're meeting the television spec, if they had a theatrical run, you can still get uh, at, at some dynamic range rather than this uh, sort of insistent soundtrack at, at a very similar level at all times. But uh, just to tag on one of the things, uh, you know, 
one of the things that I talk about to picture editors who end up having to do their own mixes um, is that the metering that is inside of the software is what's called a sample peak meter. And the meters that uh, Lawrence and I use are true peak meters. And the difference there is about three decibels. And the reason that's important, and this is something that I tell these people often, is you need to mix lower because you're not getting an accurate reading of your mix. Um, I, there's a, a very well-known uh, publication website that uh, shall remain nameless, but they brought me in for some consulting and they do an unbelievable amount of content. And one of the things that the uh, executive producer over there uh, brought me in for was he said, you know, the levels are just all over the place for all of the stuff that we mix here because these guys all mix in-house and we just wanted a professional mixer to come and give us some advice. And I looked at it and some people were mixing, you know, fairly properly. They were keeping their peaks on a sample peak meter, right, in Premiere Pro or in the Avid to say minus six, which is a good overall level because they might be peaking at minus three, whereas the guy sitting next to them, everything's red. It's just zero, you know, throughout the thing. And, and they just sounded really crunchy. And so I said, you know, really, it's it's very simple. The end user at the end of the day is the one who's going to be bringing the level up or down. So you would just want to make sure that you have a great sounding mix. Uh, if you guys just pick an arbitrary number and the arbitrary number that I picked for them, which is the arbitrary number I use myself, which is minus six. I said, if everybody is sort of trying to keep their peaks to minus six and their overall level to say minus 10, minus 12, then everybody's mixing along the same lines. I said, it's really just, you know, it goes back to what we've been talking about all along in a way, which is just communication. What are you doing? What are you doing? Just set some standards. And now all of a sudden, all of their content, which, you know, and they have quite a few pieces coming out every week, um, now have a consistent level and they don't sound crunchy. And so anyway, the point of that was the fact that the metering is sample peak metering and, uh, all uh, picture editing programs use sample peak meters, and I can't imagine anybody like yourself, Scott. Do you have any true peak meters? Did you go out and buy a true peak meter for yourself? Um, I will plead the fifth. <laughs> Maybe no, I did not. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think that's you know that's a good place to kind of wrap it up because you know those are those things that you know unless you have uh, studied audio. And, and you are a scholar of audio in a sense, like these are things that you may not, that you may not know. I mean, I've certainly been through many audio classes. I've, I've done many, many mixes, but you know, I, I, I would not have ever, I don't think about you know, the type of metering I'm looking at. I just open up my meter and I, and I go and I try to mix, you know, best to my ears versus the meter. And I think that's why the idea of uh, just not using audio post-production, proper audio post-production professionals is, you know, because of budgetary reasons or because you think that somebody else, the editor can do it is, you know, it can be pretty, it can be pretty short-sighted. But I think that, you know, in this day and age that we're in, you know, colorists are getting cut out of the budget and audio is getting cut out of the budget often because there is no budget or the people just want to save more money. And it's a, um, it's to the detriment of the final, 
the uh, the final product. And I'll let you guys give me one. I'll let you sort of speak into that as far as you know how we can encourage people to use proper audio post production, and we'll uh, we'll wrap it up on there. Yeah, I mean, I, to speak to that, I kind of have uh, at least a, a term I kind of jokingly refer to uh, internally myself is uh, I always think when I work on a project, every film, every project is has a unique shape to it. Um, whatever the filmmaker is trying to create, whatever the story is, it always has a unique shape. But if you start cutting corners and you cut a corner here and you cut a corner there, if you cut too many corners, no matter what shape you're aspiring to make, you kind of end up with just a circle. And I always call those like circle projects, the ones where, um, you know, that's that's all you're going to get because those are all the resources that were allocated to it. And so those are the projects I try to avoid. And I think that, you know, it's always inevitable in, in, in film. You're going to have to cut corners somewhere. But if you do it smartly, you'll still retain the majority of the shape that you're trying to make. If you cut too many corners, no matter what your aspirations are, you're just going to end up with a circle at the end. And so personally for me, I try to identify those projects early and avoid them because I don't want to work on the circle projects. Yeah. What I would say is uh, something that Lawrence touched on earlier, which is, uh, you know, we're artists. We are not just technicians, right? We don't just uh, know how to ride a fader and, uh, you know, I've done thousands of hours of television in the last 25 years. I've done dozens of feature films. I've done dozens of feature documentaries. Uh, so I might uh, be working with a producer who's been doing it for a year or two and doesn't have a whole lot of experience. And they should understand that when they come to someone like me or someone like Lawrence, that we are bringing a whole lot of experience and expertise that is not just how do we use a compressor or how do we EQ a dialogue track? But instead we have so much experience in telling stories that maybe, just maybe, we might also have some ideas to help you tell your story better through sound. And I think sometimes it's, we're not looked at that way. Uh, when the phone rings, it's, hey man, I got a problem. Uh, I got all these noisy tracks, can you fix it? As opposed to, uh, which happens sometimes too, um, hey, man, I got this project and there's a lot of opportunities for some great sound. <laughs> I don't hear that a lot. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I think that's a good way to wrap it up because that's kind of ultimately what it comes down to is, uh, is, is sound helping to tell the story, sound um, professionals telling your story, not sound professionals fixing problems. And we, you know, we all fix problems in post-production. It's, it's, it's inevitable. But when you approach the whole post-production as a whole that you're not fixing problems but you are telling stories and, and enhancing stories and that's better for um for all of us whether you're the director whether you're or, or the viewer it's just it's better for uh, for everybody gentlemen it's yeah, a w wonderful wonderful note to end on i absolutely totally agree with that yeah thanks for taking the thanks for taking the time and uh let's see what woody where uh where can folks find you if they need audio expertise, expertise? Uh, well they can come to my website which is alliedpost.com uh we're based out of santa monica and i would also recommend um my organization where i originally met lawrence uh which is the los angeles post production group it is not uh our meetings are, are local to los angeles but it has an international reach we have over five thousand members Membership is free. Uh, it's LAPPG.com. So AlliedPost.com or LAPPG.com. Gotcha. Lawrence, what about you? 
Yeah, and I'm an independent, so uh, I just go by my name, Lawrence Everson, and you could find more about me and my work uh, at lawrenceeverson.com. And I also want to give yeah, a huge shout out to uh, Woody's uh, uh, LAPPG organization. It's a wonderful resource uh, for filmmakers of all different types in, in Los Angeles, regardless of what their disciplines are. And uh, yeah, I, I'm absolutely grateful I started going to that many years ago and uh, became friends with Woody that way. And um, it's a wonderful organization. Awesome. Well, thank you much. Until we meet again, uh, better audio for all. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so all much. Right, for thanks, this. guys.